We're not in a series this weekend. I want to preach a message for America. And I feel the words of Martin Luther King when he said, I love America, but I'm disappointed with America. And I'm disappointed with America tonight. I'm disappointed with the direction that we've, we've gone. And I heard a Christian leader this week say something that I, I, I didn't agree with. He said that the answer to America, America's problems is to have leaders who will lead us in the right way. And although that may sound good, I, I too have issues with our leadership in every area. I'm not, to be honest with you, I'm not happy with any branch of government in America today. But the thing that I understand very clearly, and I don't fault our leaders, our leaders are a reflection of us. The problem is not in Washington. The problem is in the homes of America. The problem is not in Topeka. See, it's, it's not government that's sick. We as a nation are sick. And we're sick with something that cannot be cured with politics. And so I, I, I say that tonight so that you will understand. In fact, once I get into the message, you will see very clearly, this is not a political message. I'm old enough, and I have seen enough ebbs and flows in politics to know that there is no party that's going to solve the problems of the hurt or the sickness that's wrong with America. It is not in the ability of the Republicans. It's not in the ability of the Democrats. It's not in the ability of the Libertarians or Independents or Tea Party. Nobody has a solution to what's wrong with America. People will ask me, and I, I've been preaching since I was 16 years old. That's a long time ago. But because when I started preaching, it was in the early 70s, and how Lindsay had written his, his, his you know, groundbreaking book, Late Great Planet Earth, and he began to talk about prophecy to, to the broader context of America, and people got very interested in prophecy, and I think largely because of the Six-Day War in 1967 when Israel recovered a lot of the territory. You have to understand that God, one of God's greatest promises is that Israel will be, become a nation again, and for 2,500 years, that didn't, that didn't happen, but it happened in 1948, and then there were parts of Israel that they did not get until 1967, and then in 1973 when they recovered all, all, the, all the ancient city. And because of that, there were a lot of prophetic books written about last day events. And people will ask me the question, I remember when I was a teenage preacher, if I saw, they would ask if I saw America in prophecy. The reason why they asked that question, there are a lot of nations that are clearly spoken about in prophecy. For instance, of course, Israel is, is spoken about. And Russia in, in Ezekiel 37. Iran, Iraq, other nations that are part of the, the geopolitics of our world, those are addressed in, in, in prophecy. And so people would ask me, do you see America in prophecy? And, and I don't. I don't. And, and if you do, please don't come tell me after service because I promise you I've seen what you've seen. And I don't see America in prophecy. Uh, perhaps. I have a couple of thoughts. and Neither one of them are, are based on anything certain. But I, I wonder if it could be because uh, we're a democracy and, and maybe the jury's still out. Maybe we have an opportunity to write our story. Maybe we could go either way. Or it could be, and this is probably the one I lean toward the more, is that the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back as the, sort of the beginning, the thing that kicks off the end time events, and America's going to be a very different nation five seconds after the rapture. So perhaps it's for that reason. But in any, in any event, I, I don't see America mentioned in prophecy. And I am concerned for America today. I, I, I cannot help but hear the words of Dr. Martin Luther King in a speech that he made when he said, I love America, but I'm disappointed in America. Because that is how I feel today. I love America, but I'm, I'm disappointed with America. 
And when I look at us, i got to tell you something. I, I don't know that I see solutions coming out of Washington. For those of us who are waiting for political solutions, perhaps it's time for us to let that go. Because I don't know that we're going to get answers out of Washington. I'm disappointed with both parties. I'm disappointed with all branches of government. You know, I heard a Christian leader this week say that the answer to the problem was to get new leaders in Washington, and I thought that was one of the worst ideas I'd heard. Because the problem in America is not with our leaders in Washington. They're merely a reflection of us. The problem with America is Americans. Our hearts are sick with something that politics cannot cure. And, and the thing about, if I see the Bible, American Bible prophecy or American Bible prom, promises, the one that stands out to me, frightfully so, is Psalm chapter 9, verse 17, which says, the wicked shall be turned into hell in all the nations that forget God. All the nations. America is special to us, but it's not special to God. We should not feel that we have some sort of special status or covenant relationship with God because we are Americans. Sometimes we can almost have a, a Pan-American concept that, that says that we are, are sovereign among the nations, but not in the sight of God. The Bible says all the nations that forget God will be turned into hell. And I marry that with another statement that the Bible makes, and I'm even more frightened, where it says, to whom much is given, much shall be required. And so I, I'm disappointed in America today. But I'm not looking to politicians for a solution. I bring this message because my friends and my brothers and sisters, I believe that the solution for what's wrong with America could lie in this very room. Because one thing I discover about God is God is always merciful if there's a, what the Bible calls a remnant. If, if there's just a group of people who are serious about God, never forget that God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah if there had just been 10 people who didn't flip God off. And I think he's looking for people today. And, you know, i got to tell you, I don't know how many of you got a chance to be here Friday night, but we had a Kids World FX, and this place was packed. And I had the privilege of watching 44 elementary-age kids go public with their faith in believers' baptism. And all 44 of these kids looked into the lens of a camera and told their story. Yeah. And one by one, I heard these young, young gals and guys Say, I, want, I am being baptized today because I'm not ashamed for anybody to know I follow Jesus. And when I look to the hope of America, that's where I look today. I, I've quit looking to politics. Not that I ever did. But I want you to look at something with me in Scripture today because I want to bring you a message called Losers, Winners, and Game Changers. And uh, I feel like it's the message that you and I need to take into consideration today. Uh, even if it gets in our grill a little bit, I'd like for us to at least think about it. Take your Bibles if you have them or if you have an electronic device on which you look at your Bible. And look in 2 Kings chapter 5 because we're going to do something we rarely do. We're going to read through most of a chapter. And if you don't have it, don't worry, it'll be up on the iMag as well. But look, look at 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman the leper and his cure. Let's read. The king of Aram, some of you have a translation that says Syria. It's okay, it's the same thing. King of Aram had a great admiration for Naaman the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I'll send you a letter of introduction for you to take to the king. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing, which is kind of interesting because the little girl didn't say anything about money. 
The king, the letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter I present my servant Naaman. I want you to, I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, this man sends me a leper to heal? Am I God? No, he wasn't. Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see he's just trying to pick a fight with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there's a true prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, then your skin will be restored and you'll be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana and Farpar better than the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. But his officers tried to reason with him. said, sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So he should certainly obey when he simply says, go wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child's and he was healed. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him and Naaman said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha replied, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused, which is how we know Elisha was not a television preacher. Um, we'll save that for another, another message. Let's get on a horse and ride. We're going to see in this story a loser, a game changer, and a winner. The loser, we don't know his name or we're not given his name, but we do know who he is. He is the king of Israel and his name is Joram. When you read about Israel in these days, Israel doesn't mean what it meant in previous times, and it doesn't mean what it meant in New Testament times. After the death of King Solomon, the kingdom split, and it was as if there was a civil war. It wasn't necessarily a war, but there was clearly a division. It was as if, if you go back to civil war days where America was a union and a confederacy, ten of the tribes went with the northern kingdom. And they became known as Israel, and two of the tribes are in the southern kingdom, and they became known as Judah. So that's why when you open the, New, the Old Testament sometimes, it seems like there are two kings on the throne at the same time. It's because there's a northern confederacy and a southern confederacy, Israel and Judah. Now, here's something that you should know. The Davidic line of succession, which would eventually bring the Messiah, Jesus, was always in the southern kingdom. And there were times in the southern kingdom where there were good kings. There were kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah who were good kings. And there were also bad kings. But Israel, the northern kingdom, never had one good king. You read about the kings of Israel and you'll always find this line, they did that which was evil in the sight of God. And it's because they started wrong. See, Jeroboam, who was the first king of Israel, when the kingdom split, he was very concerned that his people might get nostalgic during feast days and days of worship and desired to go back to the temple, which was in Jerusalem. And so he was afraid that the people, you know, would drift back into Judah. So here's what he did to keep that from happening. He established a couple of idols, golden idols, at the northernmost city of Israel and the southernmost city of Israel. And, and these idols, well, let's read this. This is in 1 Kings chapter 12. The king made two gold calves, and he said to the people, it's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Now, for those of you who really know your Bible, you know this is real similar to the language that the people of Israel 
heard when they were in the wilderness and they built the gold calf or made the gold calf under Aaron, made God mad. Moses broke the tablets of stone. You know that story. This is many years later. But the king of Israel said to the people, look, we put up a gold calf at the top and the bottom of the country. It's too much trouble. That, that was his line of reasoning. It's too much trouble. And you should feel good about this because clearly this is not your problem or you wouldn't come to New Spring because this is a lot of trouble to come here, isn't it? You got the traffic jam coming in. You got the traffic jam leaving. You got all the lines to check in your kids. So clearly you're not afraid of a little difficulty to come worship. But the king of Israel said to his people, it's too much trouble for you to go all the way back to Jerusalem. Just worship my golden cows. Well, of course, that flip got off and he and Israel was in trouble from day one. And this continued on from one king to the next until Joram's dad and mom were regents. The Bible says this about Joram's dad, that he was the worst king Israel ever had at that time because he did things that were awful. And as if he weren't bad enough, he married a woman who was even worse than he was. Her name was Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel were the power couple that basically caused Israel to drift deeply into every, kinds of, every kind of debauchery. They went from worshiping idols to the most gross kind of sexual immorality. Jezebel brought with her her Canaanite form of worship, so-called, which involved when people went to worship, they would basically go and they would just sleep with whoever they wanted to sleep with as an act of worship. There were male prostitutes, female prostitutes. That was part of the Canaanite worship of Baal. So you can imagine how horribly Israel went into sin. And not only did they lead Israel into idolatry and debauchery, Ahab and Jezebel were both murderous. And because of this, God pronounced a judgment on them and their deaths were not easy. Joram watched all this happen. Joram had an opportunity to live a different kind of life because he had seen what happened to his mom and dad. But unfortunately, Joram was a loser and here's why he's a loser. Check this out. 2 Kings 3.2. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not to the same extent as his father and mother. I find that sad, don't you? I mean, because you see this guy, on one hand, he's concerned enough about upsetting God that he doesn't go as bad as his mom and dad did, but he's not courageous enough to truly follow God. I don't know what you see, and I'm not trying to be negative today, but that's sort of what I see when I see America. It's like we really don't have the courage to follow God, but on the other hand, we want to live the way we want to live. And whenever we think about it, we think, well, I'm not as bad as some other people I know. Yeah, I sleep with a lot of people, but I know people who sleep with more people. You know, I, I, I use, but I know people who use and use harder stuff. Or, or yeah, I mean, I, I'm all about money, but I know some people that, you know, that's all they can think about. And that was Joram. He was in the middle somewhere. And I, I think sometimes, and I'm not trying to be negative again, but sometimes when I look at American Christians, that's what I see. We have one foot in and one foot out. We, we, we come to worship, so we sort of have one foot in and what God has to say. But then after we, we leave worship, we're sort of like, just like anybody else. Well, let me just say this. This is the issue with, with that kind of living. There's no power in it. De week in and week out, I stand before you, and I try to share with you what I've learned about my life, what I've learned from history, and it's simply this. In every one of our lives, there are going to be days that are bigger than we are. So many days in life, we can just get up and just sort of go through the motions, but Life is going to bring stuff to you that's bigger than you are. Life is going to call for more than you can bring on certain days. Most of us, if not all of us, know that. And at that moment, it's going to be so important that you don't just have a religion. It's going to be so important that you don't just do stuff to get God off your back. 
It's going to be important for you to have a relationship with God because only a close relationship with God can get you through life's most traumatic moments. And Joram is about to encounter a traumatic moment. Because the king of Syria, who is his main enemy, who scares him to death, has just sent his general into the palace with, well, I, 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 I looked at this in today's terms, in today's price of gold and today's price of silver. A little over $3 million in gold and $220,000 in silver and some assorted clothes. And so Naaman walks into the palace to Joram and says, the king of Syria has sent me with this letter of introduction to you. And when Joram hears that, look at what he said. He read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and says, this man sends me a leper to heal. Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can just see he's trying to pick a fight with me, work with me. Is the king of Syria trying to pick a fight with Joram? No. He just wants his guy healed. And, and he's heard that it can be done. Wow, this is, I wish I had time to just talk about this. One of the greatest things that you will need a close relationship with God for is so that you will recognize opportunities when they come. Many times if you're a God follower, an opportunity will come to you dressed in the clothing of a crisis. If you're walking with God, you will recognize that. And by walking, I don't mean literally walking. I mean if you're just in a close relationship, daily relationship with God, you'll recognize that. If you're not, all you'll see is a crisis. Do you understand what was being served up for Joram here? I mean, his main enemy is the Syrians. And the Syrian king is concerned because his general's got leprosy. If Joram, by faith, owns this moment and says, yes, we really care for your general. We, we have a God in Israel who is a powerful God, and we will do everything we can to help you. He could have had peace with Syria for numbers of years, but unfortunately, he didn't see that opportunity. And guys, this is more than you want to know, but if you read the story of this king, he's always doing this. He's all over the page because he's got one foot in and one foot out. Well, I don't want to talk about losers today, so let's move on. I'm going to get out of the order of my title because the title of the message is Losers, Winners, and Game Changers. I want to jump all the way to Game Changers. Because if there's hope for America today, it's in Game Changers. And, and I am convinced that some of you are Game Changers. A Game Changer is a winner. That he or she is already a winner, but they're not satisfied with simply being a winner. They're passionate about getting people out of the loser category into the winner category. They don't, they don't want to just become winners themselves. They want to get other people to win. I know about game changers because I will tell you this today. I believe in large part I am here by the grace of God and my grandmother who was a game changer. I'm talking to some of you who are moms and you're single moms or maybe you're married but your husband is not sympathetic with your faith and you're faithful to just keep, keep loving God and loving your kids. You guys are my heroes because that's, that's the story of my grandmother. You know, the other day I had to go to South Texas. There's a part, there's a little town in South Texas called Hoover's Valley. And in Hoover's Valley, there is a historic cemetery. See, my, I have ancestors who settled that part of, of South Texas, Jacob and Isaac Hoover. They were circuit-riding Methodist preachers. And they settled that area. And then, of course, other families came. So Hoover's Valley Cemetery is a historic place. And once a year, all the families associated with the cemetery come back to South Texas. So I went last April and was part of that. There was a lady who's sort of the archivist for, for Hoover's Valley, and that's the first time she'd ever met me because I haven't been in a lot of years. Last time I went, I was 15. And so she, 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 said, she noticed I was a pastor and there were other members of our families here in ministry. She sort of assumed that I was a direct descendant of this 
you know, this, this line of pastors who settled. And I had to say to her, no, I'm not really from that side of the family. I'm from a, a, a you know, sort of a, a distantly related side. I, I don't come from the ministry side of Hoover's. I come from the Hellraiser side. That's fact. That is a fact. That's not, no, the, the, the ministry side, those are like great-great-uncles way over here. My line of the family is Hellraisers. My great-grandfather, his nickname was Wild Bill Hoover. That's, that's true. Had a horrible temper, drank too much. My grandfather was not a believer. He drank too much until he was in, in, in middle life. He came to know Christ, and, and, and I'm thankful for that. But my grandmother was a game changer. I mean, she grew up in a home that was probably the bitterest home I've ever heard about. Her mother, my great-grandmother, the bitterest woman I ever knew. See, my grandmother's daddy ran off and left him when my grandmother was a little girl, and my great-grandmother was bitter the rest of her life. Grandma wound up raising her two younger siblings. There was no faith in that family. I don't know how she fell in love with Jesus, but she did, and she loved him passionately. She had nine kids that she raised starting in Depression days. Out of the nine kids that she raised with a husband who was unsympathetic for a lot of that time, three of her sons were pastors. Three of her daughters sang in a Christian music group. One of her sons was a Bible college professor. There's a whole spate of people in my generation who are in ministry. And then beyond that, in the next generation, there are a whole lot more who are in ministry. Why? Because my grandma was a game changer. It wasn't enough for her to win. She wanted other people to win. And I am convinced, and, and you can't back me off of this, I am convinced that it weren't for the grace of God and my grandmother, I'd be in hell or in jail today. Because I just know my personality too well. There's a game changer in our story. We don't even get to know her name. And she's a little girl. That's the last thing we would expect from this little girl because you understand that she was taken away in a raiding party that would have been under the command of Naaman. And very likely or very possibly her parents may have been killed in that raiding party. But whatever we know, she was taken away and sold as a slave and wound up being in the house of, of Naaman, the top general. And she wound up with the responsibility of ministering to Naaman's wife. And I don't know how many people in Syria knew that Naaman was a leper, but Naaman at home, everybody knew he was a leper. And the little girl said to the woman that she worked for, her boss, I pray, I wish that my master could be in Israel. Because if he were in Israel, there is a prophet there and God would heal him. Now, I don't know if that story amazes you the way it amazes me, but it does on a couple of levels. First of all, I'm amazed that she loves somebody that, on the basis of human reasoning, she had no reason to love. And you know, a lot of us, if we were this little girl, and you got taken away from your home, and maybe something horrible happened to your parents, and you get carried away to a foreign country, and you wound up being a slave, and the guy that was over that gets leprosy, a lot of us would say, praise God, that's God's judgment. Right? That's how judgmental some of us can be. And yet she loved the man. Where did she have that kind of love? Where did she have the love for somebody that by reason she shouldn't have loved? And not only that, she had faith. She said, I wish my master would go see the prophet. He would heal him of his leprosy. She believed, she believed so strongly in her God, she just thought if Naaman can get to Israel, he will get healed. Now that sounds dramatic, but I want to tell you something. It doesn't even begin to tell us the level of this little gal's faith. Because Jesus would weigh, on, weigh in on this story 800 years later, and he would say something that will blow our mind when you think about this little girl. Jesus said there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman the Syrian. you got to realize that when this little girl said, if my master could be in Israel, 
She was saying something that she had never seen before. See, her people weren't following God. Her people weren't living for God. And lepers weren't getting healed. But so strong was her faith in God that she believed in something that she had never seen before. I, I just think this is ironic. Here's the story of two kings, two powerful nations, two mighty armies, a military legend, and yet it pivots on one little girl. Isn't that amazing? I mean, one little girl's faith is driving the agendas of two nations. I'm talking to some of you, you're so mad at what's happening in Washington, you just don't watch the news anymore. And you're mad because Congress won't listen to you. You're mad because the executive branch won't listen to you. You're mad because the Supreme Court won't listen to you. I really wonder, is that what changes the nation? I mean, here's a little girl who's got love for somebody who's hard to love and who's got faith in a God who can do the extraordinary. And two nations are on the precipice of decision because of this little girl's love and faith. I think it's time to add a few more game changers, don't you? How about our parents? How about our teachers? I mean, these people were swimming upstream. A lot of us, are, we know what it's like to swim upstream in this tide of political correctness. We know what it's like to swim upstream in an age where God is shoved out of the culture and the kinds of quotes that we saw from our founding leaders are considered unconstitutional today. And the question is, will we be bobble-headed dolls like most of the people in Israel, or will we, walk, will we swim upstream like this girl's parents and her teachers? I doubt, I doubt if they had any idea when they were investing truth in this little girl, the difference that she was going to make in the world. I want to talk to some of you parents today. I wonder if you realize that the game changers who could change this nation could be playing in the playroom of your house? Do you realize that little boy that drives you crazy sometimes? Do you realize that little boy could be the next Elijah? Do you realize that your son, your little boy, could be the one who will stand on some American caramel and ask this nation, why do you waffle between two opinions? If God is God, then worship him. If Baal is God, then worship him. How do you know it's not your son? You say, my, my boy, Mark, clearly not. How do you know? How do you know that that little girl in purple and pink in the playroom, how do you know that she's not the next Esther who will charge the halls of power and say, if I perish, I perish? I have a good friend, a new springer, and he's at the very pinnacle of his profession. He is the best at what he does. He's an extraordinarily successful man. We were talking on the phone the other night. And he said to me, and this very successful man said to me, Mark, the greatest goal of my life, my greatest objective is to train my two kids to be Christ followers. And let me, let me just take a moment. If you've ever walked around and looked at this campus very much, you know that New Spring is passionate about kids. Kids are our number one audience here at New Spring. I mean, that's, I gave up three of my first offices to Kids World because they needed the space. We'll give up this room if we have to. Because kids are the most important people on this campus. This nation can't afford to miss many more buses. This nation can't afford to lose another generation. We sing a song here at New Spring. We sang it last week. It's called Hosanna. And there's a lyric that every time I see it, it just lights me up. It says, I see a generation rising up to take their place with selfless faith. 
I'm telling you today, and I hope that I haven't been too redundant at this, but when I look at America, I don't see the hope in Washington. I don't see the hope in Topeka. When I look at America and I see the hope for America, I look at our kids. I look at our junior high kids, and I hear their passion. And how many of our kids looked into the lens of a camera and said, I want everybody to know that I'm not ashamed to follow Jesus Christ. That's what I look to when I look for the hope of America. And let me just say something. And I don't want to be unkind, I don't want to be critical, but some of us have been jorums as parents. We've had one foot in the world trying to make the almighty dollar. We've had the other foot in, in, in Christ trying to follow him. Maybe our kids and grandkids will grow up to do what we fail to do. May it happen. There is a winner in our story, and he's an unlikely winner. Because at the story, at the beginning of the story, he's clearly a loser. He's not even one of God's people. He doesn't come from a nation in a covenant relationship with God. His name is Naaman. He's a Syrian. He's done a lot of bad things. And when we first read about him, Naaman's got five things going for him and one problem. Let's read it. Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded. The Lord had helped him with victory, and he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So think about that. He had all these things going for him. He was a commander. His boss loved him. He was a valiant soldier, highly regarded by the people. He was a celebrity. And God had been helping him, but he was a leper. You know what that added up to? He was a leper. See, being a leper outweighed everything else. Leprosy in the Bible days is different from the strain that we have today, but leprosy in the Bible days was the worst possible diagnosis that anybody could get. It was fatal. There was no cure. And sometimes it could be a slow death. For those of us who have studied leprosy, we used to think of it as a skin disease. But the disease in Bible days was not just a skin disease. It was, it was a disease of the nervous, uh, nervous system. So it, could, it would attack all the organs of the body. And sometimes a person might suffer 20 or 30 years with leprosy. Now, it's interesting when we study the scripture that leprosy is always presented to us as a type or a picture of sin. Leprosy is compared to sin and sin is compared to leprosy. And we could take a little while today to talk about why that's true, but let me just give you a few little, little thumbnail sketch, maybe a few ideas about that. When leprosy began to really attack the body, it especially attacked the digits, the fingers and the toes, and, and they would actually, uh, a person who had leprosy lost feeling in their appendages, and they would actually do damage to themselves without realizing it. Doesn't that sound like sin? In fact, I, I was reading yesterday, uh, scholars work on the leprosy of Bible times. He said a person could pick up a cup of boiling, scalding water and not even realize it. I heard others talk about how that people would sleep and not realize that rodents were actually consuming part of their digits. It was an awful disease. And not only was it fatal, there was a social stigma attached to leprosy because people, it was a communicable disease to some degree. And so people who had leprosy not only had to suffer until their death with an incurable disease, but they were also ostracized and separated from the rest of the culture. So Naaman had all these wonderful things going for him, but he was a leper. You know, in the Bible, Scripture talks to us about sin. I think, and I want to talk for a few moments about that. I think a lot of us have a misunderstanding about what the Bible means with sin. Because for many of us, especially who grew up in religion or we grew up hearing people talk about sin, we think about acts of sin. We think about things that people do wrong and we think about them as sins. As if our problem is sins. Maybe I can stop doing sins. You have to realize that from the way the Bible presents it, the issue is not sins as a specific act or specific acts of sin. It's sin as a force that is within us 
And the acts of sin are symptoms to the disease that we have. One of the clearest expressions of this is in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where the Bible says, when Adam sinned, sin, not sins, but sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. So the issue is not that we do acts that are wrong. The problem is that we have a force within us that's more, that makes us more predisposed to do wrong than right. It's a disease that we have that we inherited from our first parents. And like leprosy, it is incurable and fatal. Maybe this will help. You know a little bit about leprosy, maybe more than I know. But you understand that Naaman didn't have leprosy because he had sores. It wasn't that he was a leper because sores came up on his body. He had sores because he was a leper. He was a leper before he had sores. You and I do not, we're not sinners because we commit sins. We commit sins because we're sinners. Person does is not a sinner because he lies, he lies because he's a sinner. Person doesn't cheat. There's not a sinner because she cheats, she cheats because she is a sinner. That's why Jesus said it's what comes out of a person that pollutes. Obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, carousing, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. All these are from the heart. They're in my heart. Not all of them, maybe, but definitely some of them. See, the problem is we have a, see, this this is what is so wrong with religion is that we go to religion and we think about the acts of sin that we do and we think, well, maybe I can learn not to do these things or maybe I can quit doing them or slow down a little bit or find some way to feel better about myself with all these acts of sin when all the problem is we're like Naaman. We have a disease inside of us that's fatal, fatal and incurable. Well, get the picture now and we'll close with this. Naaman finally gets to Elisha's house after the, foolishness with the king. And I hope God keeps us on video when we get to heaven because I'd love to watch this because you got to realize here's a man with a whole army and his entourage that pull up in Elisha's subdivision. And they wait out at the curb and Naaman's a very important man. He's expecting Elisha to come out and do something. And Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. He just sends his servant Gehazi outside and said, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Now, there's no healing properties in the water of the Jordan River. God just wanted Naaman to do the two things that all of us have to do to have a relationship with him. Number one is to have faith in God's plan when it doesn't make sense. And number two, to humble ourselves and let go of everything else. Nobody will ever have a relationship with God until they do those two things. Until they believe God when God makes no sense and humble themselves and let go of everything else. Well, you notice Naaman's reaction I mean, after all, think about this. He has an incurable disease. God has told him it makes, something makes no sense. By the way, God has told us something that makes no sense. If you want to have a relationship with God, the Bible says this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice there's nothing there about baptism, nothing there about religion, nothing about quitting doing the stuff that's wrong, nothing about community service, nothing about joining a monastery, nothing there. It's just whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and the basis of our life change is the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a curse that paid for our sins. And some of us hear that and we think, well, it cannot be that simple. I didn't think it was that simple. I mean, look at what Naaman said. 
I thought he would certainly come out and meet me. I expected him. I mean, Naaman even thought he knew how he was going to do it. I expected him to come out and wave his hand over the leprosy and call the name of the Lord as God and heal me. Naaman saying, I just thought it was going to be like the ceremonial deal where he comes out and does some kind of hoodoo or a mojo or something over me. And, 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 and he got mad. And he started to leave. Guys, i got to tell you, as I said at the beginning of this talk, I've been, I've been preaching the good news of Jesus Christ since I was 16 years old. And now I've told audiences all over the world that the way to have a relationship with God is to abandon everything, abandon your religion, abandon your good works, lose your hope and your ability to change. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ by faith. See Jesus dying for you. Put your confidence in the, in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made for your sins and put all your confidence in him. I've told hundreds of thousands of people that, if not more than that, and there are so many people that walk away from that and say, well, I just don't believe that. It can't be so simple. And that's what happened with Naaman. Naaman was going to walk away. But get this. He was going to walk away with the same leprosy he came with. You know, he, he said, I don't know why I have to go dip in the Jordan. I'm from Syria. We got better rivers. And indeed, they did have better rivers. The Abana and the Farpar, both of them flowed down from Mount Lebanon with an elevation of 10,000 feet. And the snow melt and the rain would come off Mount Lebanon. And it would roll, water would roll across desert sands. And by the time it got to the river, the rivers were crystal clean and pure. Jordan, on the other hand, was 60 miles long. Began at the Sea of Galilee and ended at the Dead Sea. It dropped elevation of 1,000 feet. It was always churning and always muddy. And Naaman said, why should I go dip in the Jordan River? It doesn't make any sense. My rivers are cleaner. And it could be that someone will say, I just don't think it can be Jesus. I think you have to belong to a particular church. Or I think you have to do this. Or I think you have to do that. And I love you with more than you can imagine. But the problem is you'll walk away with your leprosy. You walk away with your sin. As long as your faith is in yourself, as long as your faith is in your religion, as long as your faith is in your good works, you will walk away with your leprosy. I'm so thankful that Naaman had a lieutenant who was really wise. He said, sir, if he'd ask you to do something hard, you'd have done it. If he'd ask you to, to, to go subdue a kingdom and come back, you'd have done it. If he said, go get ten times this much money and bring it back, you'd have done it. But all he asked you to do is to do, I mean, think about this. How many of us, if God had said, go join a monastery, wear an orange robe, and eat nothing but vegetables the rest of your life, that's what you do to go to heaven, we'd have done it. But we're still hung up over this idea that you just simply put your faith and trust in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? If God had told us to do something hard, we'd have done it. Instead, he just asked us to come by faith and to humble ourselves and believe what seems hard to believe. Well, Naaman did it seven times and dipped in the water seven times, and when he came out, his skin was like a baby's, and he was a winner. I'm closing today, and I'm talking to some of you, and you don't have a relationship with God, but you don't have to leave that way. You've, you, you've experienced the impossibility of religion. You've tried the futility of trying to become a different person. You have suffered through trying to make people feel better about who you are, and you keep walking away with your leprosy. 
Do you realize if by faith today you would just come to Jesus and lay who you... I mean, here's the deal. Forgive me for breaking a sentence. He doesn't say get your life all put together, tied up with a bow and bring it to God. He says come like you are. Naaman had to come like a leper because he was a leper. He had to come with his leprosy. God didn't ask him to change. God said come like you are. Here's the thing. God will take you like you are, but he won't leave you like he found you. This is not about what you do for God. It's about what God has already done for you. It is not about your love for God. It's about God's unconditional love for you. And God says, bring all your sins, bring all your failures, and come just like you are, and be honest with me, and put your faith and trust in my son, because the blood that came out of Jesus' body was a currency that paid for our sin. There's no other cure for sin than the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you will come just like you are, and if you will come by faith and put your confidence in the risen Christ and ask him, He will wash away your sin. It could be that you're here today and you're a winner. Because someday you did do that. You're not perfect. You still struggle. In fact, the closer you get to God, sometimes the more we realize just how flawed we are. But you're a winner because someday in your life you put your confidence in Jesus Christ and you have the promise of God that God has forgiven you and he loves you unconditionally. Nothing can. Here's the thing. If you're a winner today, nothing can ever take that away from you. you say, Mark, I just lost my job, but you're still a winner. You say, Mark, I've just gone through a really difficult time in my family situation, but you're still a winner. You say, Mark, I just was diagnosed with cancer, but you're still a winner if you have faith in Jesus Christ because nothing can ever take that away. But could I ask all the winners here a question? Is that enough? Are you content with just being a winner? Isn't there something that cries out for you to get people out of the loser category into the winner category? Aren't, aren't there people that you love? I mean, how many of us are going to be with family members this week? You say, Mark, I got family members. I'm not sure I want to go to heaven. <laughs> but think about this little girl. She loves somebody who was hard to love. See, I mean, I'm just trying to tell us if we're going to see this country change, we've got to love people who are difficult to love, and we've got, we got to have faith in a God who can do the extraordinary. It isn't politics. It's the love that God puts in our hearts and the faith to believe that God can do the impossible. You say, well, Mark, I'm afraid if I, if I talk to a friend who's not a believer, they're going to ask me questions about the Bible I don't know the answer to. Well, it happens to me every day. I'll tell you what. Here's the deal. You know what? People can question what you believe about the Bible. They can question your ideas about what's right and what's wrong, but there's one thing that nobody can question, and that's your story. If Jesus Christ has made a difference in your life, just tell your story. Nobody can question that. Tell the people that you love. Tell the people that you don't love, because here's the thing. If you're a winner and you want to be a game changer like my grandmother, you move out of the category of just being okay that you're okay. You want other people to be okay. It's not enough till everybody you know knows the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? I, I'm talking to any of you here today who are saying, Mark, I really do want to have a relationship with God, and I want to bring my condition to God. And you've said, I, I mean, word, the Word of God says I can come unconditionally, bring all my flaws and failures, and come to Jesus, and he would, he would cure me. Well, it's true. And I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to pray a prayer that calls out to Jesus. These aren't magic words. The important thing is what you mean. But if you want to make this decision, you want, to, you want this to happen, just like Naaman, remember you've got to humble yourself and let go of all the other stuff and just put all your confidence in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And if you're willing to do that, 
pray with me. I'll pray it slowly because the important thing is what you believe so that you can think about the words. Dear God, I am a sinner. And I cannot cure myself. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe his blood was a currency that pays for my sins. And I believe he arose from the grave. And I come by faith asking you to forgive me and make me God's child and to wash away my sin. In Jesus' name. Hey, if you just pray that prayer, please don't leave without getting a gift from me. I've got a, a packet that's got a DVD in it and a book that I wrote that answers a lot of questions that you may still have, plus a coupon for a new Bible. If you just prayed to receive Christ, would you come by guest services? There's one out there and one back by the coffee shop. And I promise you, just come back and say, I pray with Mark. I promise you, they won't hassle you, stalk you, ask you for your routing number. They just want to give you this, okay? <laughs> Next week, we start a brand new series called Lost in Love. Thank you. Have a safe and happy 4th of July. God bless.